This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. This week on Woman on the Line, we look at Victoria's broken bail laws and later in the show, Mariam Issa shares her journey from trauma to empowerment. This next conversation touches on themes of state violence and trauma. For support, call 13 Yarn on 13-9276 or Lifeline on 13-1114. And now, my interview with the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Narita. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be speaking to you about um, a topic that's of great importance and a topic that is affecting those most at the margins. So before we do that, can you introduce yourself to our listeners as well as your role at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service? Sure. Um, so my name is Narita Wade. I'm a Yuri Yoranarindjiri woman and I work as the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, we provide uh, criminal law, civil and family law services across the state of Victoria. Um, and we have um, justice hubs based in Warrnambool and Bendigo um, and the rest of the state is serviced through our main hub in Preston, though we are looking to expand um, to more regional hubs in the next 12 months. To understand Victoria's current bail laws and why they need fixing, it's important to know why we got here or how we got here. Why were the bail laws tightened and what have we seen as a result of the changes? In 2017 and 18, in response to the Burke Street incident, the Victorian government changed the bail laws to restrict access to bail for individuals accused of serious violent offences, though the government failed to consider the devastating impacts these punitive laws would have on Aboriginal people, particularly women. In 2017, bowels, along with many other stakeholders and experts, warned the government that the bail laws would disproportionately impact Aboriginal people and lead to deaths in custody. Sadly, we were ignored um, and it's taken years of advocacy and the tragic passing of Veronica Marie Nelson for the Victorian government to actually commit to changing the laws again. Early this year, the Victorian Attorney General Jacqueline Symes admitted that the government cast the net too wide when making these punitive changes. What it actually means is that the laws actually made it much harder for people to be granted bail, leading to a huge increase in people stuck in custody on remand. Many people were being locked up for alleged offences that wouldn't even attract a custodial sentence if they were sentenced. Currently, about one in three people in Victoria's prisons have not been sentenced. For women, it's over 40% who are unsentenced. The laws, of course, had a disproportionate impact on our people, particularly our women. In January 2022, over 70% of our women in prison had not been sentenced. Many of those women are victims of, are victim survivors of family violence and primary carers. Torn away from their families, communities, culture and kin, the disproportionate number of Aboriginal women on remand is contributing to more deaths in custody, but it's also contributing to the destruction of lives for their children, for their families, for their communities. Um, and these laws also go completely against what the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death in Custody recommended over 32 years ago, which was that imprisonment could only be used as the last resort. Right. And how do the Victorian bail laws work? Sure. When someone is arrested for an offence, they're either granted bail and required to attend court on a certain date, or they're detained in prison or youth prison. 
until they appear in court, which is called remand. Bail is only granted if the tests set out in the bail laws are met. For some offences, the law provides that someone accused of an offence should be granted bail unless they present an unacceptable risk. It is up to the police or prosecutor to prove that person presents this risk. For other offences, there are two tests that must be met. As a first step, the law states that bail should not be granted unless the person accused of the offence can demonstrate their exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons for granting bail. This means that there is a presumption against that person getting bail. In deciding whether there are exceptional circumstances or compelling reasons for granting bail, all surrounding circumstances must be considered, including the person is Aboriginal. If this step is not satisfied, bail is refused. If step one is satisfied, however, the bail decision maker has to also consider whether that person poses an unacceptable risk and is up to police or prosecutor to prove that there is a risk. Creating a double hurdle for these other offences and putting the burden on the person to prove they deserve bail can make it incredibly difficult to get bail. It also means that someone who's charged with multiple low-level offences, say, for example, possession of drugs or personal use, shoplifting, bail offences, must meet the same test to access bail as someone who's actually charged with murder or terrorism offences. When a person fails to appear in court, the assumption is that they skip bail or that they're up to, you know, no good. What are some of the reasons a person might fail to appear in court? I think when most people think of bail conditions, they think of somebody who um, is able um, to, you know, meet um, requirements such as having stable housing, such as having access to transport, um, such as having um, the mental capacity um, to understand and meet and engage with court processes. Many of the people who are imprisoned in Victoria today suffer from mental health issues, from intellectual disabilities as well as other disabilities, and often are homeless and or transient, which is basically the same thing, Mm. making it incredibly difficult for them um, to make court dates, particularly when those court dates can be across Victoria, um, where they may not have somewhere where they can shelter. Um, they may not have access to things that let them know what the date is all the time, particularly if they're homeless and transient. Um, and noting the social disadvantage that often exists in those who are accused of um, offending, particularly those um, related to theft um, and um, shoplifting-like offences. Um, we also have to stand that people who have mental health issues and or disabilities um, often are finding it very, very difficult um, to meet tasks that you or I think are perfectly normal and easy to complete. Having some perception of them as, you know, big um, offenders who are up there living this life on yachts or Ferraris is just not accurate. Mm. So Vals is calling for changes to Victoria's bail laws. What are some of the recommendations that have been put forward? Yes. So um, the most important um, recommendations that we've put forward is that the bail laws must be urgently amended to remove the presumption against bail, to create a presumption in favour of bail for all offences with the onus on the prosecution to demonstrate that bail should not be granted due to there being a specific and immediate risk to the physical safety of a person, a serious risk of the witness, or they pose a demonstrable flight risk. And flight risk means that that person will flee the jurisdiction, not that they won't attend a court for other reasons. 
Um, we also want to see that we explicitly require that a person must not be reminded for an offence that is unlikely to result in a sentence of imprisonment because that's just logical. And removing the offences of committing an indictable offence whilst on bail, breaching bail conditions and failure to answer bail, noting how difficult um, that is for people to overcome, particularly as it relates to further applications for bail. You mentioned earlier that there was an over-representation of Aboriginal people in remand. Can you tell us why this is? Mm. Look, uh, when talking about the impact on Aboriginal communities, um, it's important to understand that the immediate harm caused by detaining Aboriginal person is significant and far-reaching. Detention separates an individual from their family, community, country and culture. And it jeopardises their health, well-being and safety, including through increasing rates of people self-harming in custody. Detention also disrupts education and can result in a loss of housing, employment or custody of dependent children. And once you're stuck in that quicksand of the criminal legal system, it is difficult to get out. If someone is remanded, they're more likely to receive a custodial sentence because they have effectively been punished for their offending. Once someone has received a prison sentence, they're more likely to be refused bail if they are arrested again and are more likely to receive a more severe sentence if they are sentenced again in the future. You can just see how that cycle continues and um, just um, going back to the matter of um, Veronica Nelson, um, her family has been incredible um, in trying to get the Victorian government to understand that um, they just don't want you know, minimal changes. Um, They want government to implement four key changes to the bailout to make sure what happens to Veronica never happens again. Um, And that's why they are calling for Pockham's Law, um, as Pockham was Annie Donna's affectionate name for Veronica who couldn't say Possum, so um, she would say Pockham. Um, And, you know, they will continue to fight for justice for Veronica, Um, but it's on all of us Um, to fight to create a bail system that works for Victoria, Um, not just for our police and prosecutors, but for our community. Um, This is doing no help to community safety. In fact, all we're doing is locking away our problems and creating bigger ones down the track. And that was Narita Waite, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. To learn more about VALS and their community justice work, visit vals.org.au. That's vals.org.au. On community radio stations right around Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. In this next interview, I'm joined by Mariam Issa, a storyteller, life coach and author, to get a glimpse into her life, from her work at Raw Australia to her personal achievements. She's an incredible woman and I'm so glad I get to share her with you. It's really good to see you, Ayan, and I will start my story from the first beginning when I arrived in Australia, which is in November of 1998. I came as a refugee with four children, and I was pregnant with my fifth child. And I think, you know, coming to a country, a place where I've never, you know, interacted with the people before, I've never seen a white person before, I've never interacted with them. And then now they were my neighbors and I was among them. And it 
actually was a really completely different world to the world that I knew. And the amazing thing about how, you know, I was resettled was the fact that I was put in a place that is very renowned in, in Melbourne. And it's a very um, white, but also very affluent place. And I felt then that we were very black in it and very poor. And I remember that our next door neighbor actually installed cameras when we came because he'd never interacted with Africans before. And he might have felt a bit of fear, but I did not understand then. And then, you know, uh, September 11 happened two years after we arrived. And then it began a whole new different journey as we thought we were settled. But then the upheaval of like being Muslim in Brighton again, started. So it was, you know, a very hard journey to say the least. But, you know, in that same community, I feel like I have evolved. I created a community around myself. And in the beginning, I think it was mostly because of my children. I wanted my children to belong. I didn't want them to really look over their shoulder and feel that they were different. I just wanted them to be part of the community. And so that's how my journey really started. Yeah. It started with my children. And then it began as, you know, self-discovery for myself. And how would you describe this journey that you've been on? Yeah, so I would say I'm a completely different person today. And, you know, there's so much war that I was carrying inside of myself. I have come from, you know, coming from a war torn, coming from a place that, you know, um, there was so much unsettlement, but there was also so much trauma that was undealt with. And we didn't even know about trauma back then. It was just in our bodies. We could feel it, but nobody ever addressed, addressed it. But as I walked along this journey, I realized that I was in... Um, in a marriage that didn't even fit who I was and then the marriage disintegrated and I started to really question a lot of things that I was harboring in my heart and hence I became an author. I, you know, I sat in a writing class for three years and I wrote a book called A Resilient Life and I think in the reflection of writing that book, a lot of things became very clear for me. Um, one, that I was a creator of my life and I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't a victim in it. And I could really choose the life that I wanted to live. But saying that and knowing that and doing it is a different thing. So it had to be, you know, in order to create a life of design, you really have to be present in that life. Mm. And the presence calls for great awareness yeah yeah I love the story that you've shared because I've listened to a few of your interviews mm -hmm. you you know you've sort of touched on it now about the great isolation and alienation mm -hmm. you know you faced racism classism because Brighton is yes. a very wealthy area mm -hmm. but you pushed your way in when it would have been so much easier to just leave or remove yourself from you know these these people who were treating you basically like an outsider because to them yes. you were an outsider. So what do you think helped you kind of go, no, no, this is my home. 
and I'm going to stay and I'm not going anywhere. Anywhere. So I th- what I realized is that culture is a currency. And when your currency is deflated, you cannot buy anything with it. And so I felt, and even the currency that you're given, you don't know how to trade with it. You make a lot of mistakes. And a lot of people make assumptions about you. And as you take on these assumptions, assumptions are the worst things that we can, you know, uh, put on another person because it's a judgment that is not voiced. And when we don't do that, it's the person feels the energy. You know, communication is way more than words. And they cannot defend themselves. They feel it, but there's nothing that they can say. Mm. And so realizing those things, and I am a deep thinker and I journal a lot. And I realized that actually, you know, uh, I just want to know what this community is all about. What ticks them? What makes them, you know, who they are? And I think I became very curious in the journey. And curiosity is one of the most important things that opens up our imagination. Yeah, I think it definitely helped that you sort of didn't internalize what was happening, but you kind of, you know, became a researcher in your own way, trying to research the community, the people that you're around, trying to figure out what it is that they're, I guess, so fearful of. I'd be curious to know, have people changed their mind? Were there people who when they first met you, you know, had preconceptions who've perhaps changed now and kind of, has that happened? (laughs) Totally. Yeah, totally. But one thing that I also want to say about curiosity is that I had a contrasting experience. I had an experience that I could put together and say, oh, where I came from, this is, this happened this way, but this is not this way. And so I just always wanted to weigh the two, you know, the two sides and to see which was better or what was going on here and to understand more. So that's, you know, partly the, the curiosity. But I think in this journey, I really went into, um, really connected with the community but even after my integration which I call it integration because it was about integrating my story and I felt that I was not only integrating within a community but I was also integrating within myself and I was learning a lot of things from what I was taking in the image of what you know the mirror that was being shown to me through Mm. the community to has especially when I was invited into the coffee culture and I started sitting down with you know uh, western women and I started changing stories and realizing also their lifestyle and realizing that I missed the glory and the glamour and there was so much pain underneath and it Mm. was all covered by you know material so once I understood that I realized that oh the some of the weight or some of the wars that I was carrying wasn't just mine it was of the collective and people you know other women weren't even happy around me although I felt like with you know their outside glamour they didn't inwardly there was something that was less you know apparent in their truth And so I think that allowed me to have an insight Mm. into this new culture. And it actually highlighted for me a a much deeper pain that wasn't addressed and talked about. 
at least in Africa or my pain, it was all over the place, like people could see it. But here it was the coal under the ashes mm. that were really burning, but nobody was addressing. And once I started connecting with women, I started to address that. And I started to bring in, you know, the, the analogies of, of, of the pain that we carry together. Mm. And hence the bone of, you know, my community garden, which I really started from a deep place for me. And it was about connecting with women deeply. And actually connection is one of my non-negotiable yeah. values. Ooh. I really love, you know, I, 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 I think life is about having values. Yeah. And, you know, once you understand that, you know, how you you work with your values is how you can make a meaningful and fulfilling life for yourself. Yeah. Without values, you're just creating by default. 100%. Yeah. My mom always said that to me. She's mm -hmm. like, you've got to have values because things will change around you. Totally. But your values are like. They anchor you. They totally anchor you and 100%. they give you a deep root. And so, you know, those values anchored me. And I started, you know, at the time I didn't even know that my value was connection. But I was, you know, connecting people. I was connecting women and I was talking about storytelling. And I was telling people about how we can be designers of our own stories and the curators of our stories and how stories really can be used for empowerment and how we can actually integrate our story so that we can let go of this, you know, the the drama that we don't need and keep the nuggets of gold. Mm. So that's how I became a storyteller. You're, you're definitely a storyteller <laughs> and you're definitely a writer because the way you put things into, into perspective and the way mm. you describe things, it's so beautifully poor. It's almost poetic. Mm. So Raw Garden, which you've just mentioned, that started in 2012? Yes, yes. What do you think has led to its longevity? You know, why do you think people gravitate towards it? Yeah, in the beginning, I thought just, you know, the raw garden is actually um, created by the community because I watched a movie, um, a documentary actually about the Liberian civil rights movement. And I saw that documentary when women were in, they were just like us from, a, you know, Somalia, I come from civil war, and civil war is the worst war ever. So Liberians were going through it, and then women came together. And the fight was between actually Muslim and Christians. And when they came together, they put on two white clothes, and they said, we want peace. And that's women from both the mosque and the church. And they drove Charles Taylor, who was the president at the time, you know, out of office and brought Salif, who was, you know, um, I think she was the second or the third African woman president. And that was so profound. And for me, it inspired me, you know, how women can come together. And I realized, I think, in this journey that women are truly the conduits of compassion and we are the wombs of creation. Mm. So it's up to us to really create the communities that we want to live in. Yeah. And I think the balance has been lost and the work is and it still is for us to really connect. Especially now I, you know, having this conversation with you gives me an immense pride because it's sitting with a young Somali woman 
you know, and this is the work that we need to do, that intergenerational work. And we have to let go of the stories that we have been fed. We're carrying the traumas of our great grandmothers. Mm. And so for you and me to be here in Melbourne and having this conversation mm. is in itself. What's next for you? Um, what do you have in the works? Where is your head and where is your heart at? Do you know in the Islamic traditions, we have an ayah in the Quran that talks about the barzakh, you know. Um, there is a barzakh between the, you know, um, the freshwater ocean and the salty water ocean. And when um, fish come, wants to come and, you know, integrate, go to the other side, they have to be in the barzakh for acclimatization. Mm. And they can't go to that different energy until they acclimatize. And sometimes that acclimatization can take a long time. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I think I have transitioned from being, you know, all the roles have fallen down. You know, my children are all grown ups. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not married anymore. And it's like, oh, who is this w new woman? <laughs> new yeah, yeah. So I'm in that kind of like enjoying the barzakh at the moment. But hopefully, you know, I'm looking at writing another book and uh, it's, it's in the process. Mariam Isa manifesting her future goals. To learn about Mariam's community garden, visit raw-australia.com. .org.au That's raw-australia.org.au Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03-9419-8377. Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website 3cr.org.au forward slash woman on the line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Taking us out is Emily Waramara, with black smoke. I'm Ian Shirwa and you've been listening to I'll Woman be on the Line. Under stars tonight. Not sure exactly where I'll be. Maybe underneath the pale Or maybe underneath that tree. Black smoke riding in the sky tonight. Everything will be alright If you let go Humans Gathered in a place tonight Everything will be alright If you let go
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.